A man once said to me, I don't go to church because the church and the world just don't make any sense to me anymore. He is not alone. He is one of many today suffering from what is a well-entrenched cultural shift, reinforced from grade school all the way to the university and enshrined by the guardians of political correctness. There are no moral absolutes. There is no truth. Each person's morality, each person's truth is as valid and good as another's and one cannot, one must not ever question another's truth. And that living according to how one feels is far more important than living according to how one thinks. The man allowed himself to be immersed in the confusing noise of every opinion expressed as being equal, of everyone's truth being the truth, which ultimately means there is no truth. And our church stands as a very uncomfortable, irritating, annoying contradiction to our world. I, I realized this when I was a Protestant, and I really experience it now as a Catholic. Because our church holds that the, there is truth. And the truth is simple. Jesus is the Christ. He is God. And therefore, he is the truth that should form our thoughts and govern our feelings. So we do not have to be victims of panic created by all the noises out there in the world. And with talking to this gentleman, I use today's gospel text to frame our discussion. Now, Jesus did something rather interesting. He deliberately took his disciples, his church, to Caesarea Philippi, a pagan city. At that time, Caesarea Philippi was a gleaming, magnificent city set on a cliff some 1,100 feet above sea level. There remains today a spring in a cave where the Greeks, centuries before Jesus, worshipped the god Pan. They also believed the spring was one of the portals to hell, the netherworld. By Jesus' day, there was an exquisite temple built and dedicated to Pan that drew many pagan worshipers throughout the Mediterranean. Its ruins and the spring, by the way, are still there. Now, here's the question. Why would Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, bring Jewish disciples to a pagan shrine dedicated to the god Pan? Pan was the god of all that is wild. He is portrayed as half-human, with the legs and the horns of a goat. He is, if you wish, a representation of the animal within us. 
wanting what we want, when we want it, how we want it, with whom we want it, without any regards for the consequences that others may have to pay for our actions. Our English word panic comes from the legend that Pan's voice was so horrifying that those who heard it were terrified and, well, panicked. Pan is often depicted as carrying a musical instrument, a type of flute. This too, however, has its origins in his unbridled impulses. He was a lecherous god among the Greeks and attempted one day to seduce a nymph. Refusing his advances, the nymph disguised herself, according to the legend, as reeds. Not to be denied his pleasure, Pan cut off the reeds and placed them together in decreasing length, making a flute. Now, this myth of Pan did serve a purpose. It shows our instinctive need to make sense of the world particularly to explain the chaos we suffer, either from the actions of others or from our own internal conflicts between what is noble and what is bestial. Interestingly, the ancient Greek mythologies could never agree which of the gods fathered Pan, revealing that not even all their clever myths could explain the origin of the chaos that lies within us, the, of the impulses that threaten to unravel our lives and the damage we can impose on others. Still, human beings are hardwired to make sense of our world, of our lives, of what happens to us, why we do what we do, and what happens to us when this life comes to its end. And we have a choice. We can either create myths or we can discern and submit to truth. And that's why Jesus brought his Jewish disciples before a pagan shrine to be ready to hear truth. It was to this gleaming temple, dedicated to a false god and a spring of water, believed to be a portal to hell, a place of competing truths, that Jesus brought his primitive church. And Jesus took advantage of our hardwired nature to find meaning by zeroing in on the disciples with that critical question, who do you say that I am? Only Peter responded, and his response was more magnificent than that gleaming city and shrine, more powerful than the mythical portal to hell. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, we do have to ask, how did Peter come up with that? Because after all, let's be honest, Peter was not exactly the sharpest tool in the apostolic shed. This is the mysterious zone of encounter between humanity seeking and grace compelling. Peter took all of his experiences of Jesus up to that point, all the miracles, all the teachings, even his own experience of Jesus' power within him when he and the other disciples were sent on mission to heal the sick, 
raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. All these experiences were within Peter, but neither one nor all of them put together would allow him to come to the truth until they were woven together by grace and allowed Peter to glimpse for only a moment the truth and blurt it out. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the vicinity of that magnificent pagan shrine, Peter's humanity, compelled by grace, proclaimed that the true God was not in a chamber of exquisitely carved marble, but standing before him in the flesh. The true God did not offer one truth among a bunch of holy, equally other truths, but the truth upon which human happiness in this world and the next relies on. The spring, thought to be a portal to hell, was ripped of its power to impose dread. And the voice of the true God did not instill panic, but rather compassion, understanding, healing, life, hope. Now, did Peter understand the full implication of what he said? No, he wouldn't time. First, however, Peter had to experience the horror of Jesus' passion, the panic induced by all those screaming for Jesus' death because Jesus dared to defy their personal truths. He had to first go through the panic of the holy and life-giving cross and then the joy and the hope given by the risen Lord that brought Peter forgiveness and restoration. Then Peter would understand what he was graced to say, standing before that shrine dedicated to a pagan god. Then he would understand that in Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ alone, that portal to hell has no power over those who trust in Jesus. Then Peter would understand that the keys to the kingdom of heaven are the church, the community of disciples, united in Jesus, proclaiming the truth of Jesus in scripture and in sacrament, and one rooted firmly in the truth of Jesus, need never panic when assaulted by the ever-changing, chaotic, shrilling voices of mere human opinions and speculations. I reminded the man that he had been immersed in this truth in his baptism, that the grace that Peter was privileged to experience for a microsecond is something that was infused in him and abides in him at all times, and that grace abides in every single one of us that has been baptized. But then I asked, when you deny yourself the food of the gospel, when you deny yourself the nourishment of the Eucharist, when you deny yourself the strength of a worshiping church, and the power of prayer, what do you have left 
to feed on, but the confusing, competing, conflicting claims of others' opinions claiming to be truth. Like so many today, he in essence was starving himself. We were immersed in truth. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. That truth is dwelling within us. It is always there. The question really is, do we allow that truth to govern our thoughts, to govern our feelings, or do we allow ourselves to be pulled, tugged, and pushed by all the panicky noises of the world? 